quite nice. Yeah. One minute. One minute? Is, is he your favorite composer, Tchaikovsky? Mr. President, excuse me, but just before we go, give me a little pat. When you talked to Golda Meir on the phone, did she sound desperate? Oh, yes. Oh, desperate, uh, but strong. Oh, she wasn't... Uh, you, you must understand, uh, this woman, people say, I imagine she'd be very emotional like all women and so forth. But as far as uh, she was concerned, I recall one time she was asked a question when she uh, became foreign minister in her first meeting at the UN. Some reporter came up to her and says, how does it feel to be the first woman foreign minister in Israel? And she says, I don't know. I've never been a man foreign minister. Well, let me tell you, there are very few men I'd put in the ring of diplomacy with Golda Meir. She's strong. She's intelligent. She's tough. She doesn't try to use her femininity in order to con you. And she doesn't ask for any favors, she doesn't ask for any special treatment because she happens to be a woman. And uh, as a result, she gains enormous respect. Don't ever underestimate Golda Meir, or for that matter, don't underestimate any women <laughs> under certain circumstances. That, of course, was Richard Nixon talking about Golda Meir, the former Prime Minister of Israel and one of the most prominent women in world politics in the 1970s. This was also the height of the women's liberation movement, a time when activists and academics were openly discussing old taboos like abortion and loudly advocating for better representation in offices and boardrooms. This was the era when women's rights gained major legal victories, Title IX, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, and of course, Roe v. Wade. You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it all feels so much like today. Can't you see what is happening now on the American scene? Women in this country really realizing that they have a great deal of power that they haven't even taxed. It's funny, isn't it, that there aren't any women in the executive positions of this company. The moments of truth when you suddenly think, that's me too. People are starting to identify with us as human beings. I'm bringing you some of my favorite tapes from my dad's archive of over 10,000 interviews. We'll hear from tennis superstar Billie Jean King, Gloria Steinem and the founders of Ms. Magazine, and the first black woman elected to Congress, Shirley Chisholm. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. Tell me, do you think there can ever be a woman president of the United States? Oh, yes. Yes, it's coming. The lady who's joining us now is incredibly busy, still in the world of tennis, and incredibly successful. Will you welcome back to join us again, Billie Jean King? Welcome back. Thank you. It's been hey, a while. It has indeed. Last time you were here, you'd uh, just been through that uh, knee injury and knee surgery, hadn't you, last time? I know. Billie Jean King is 28 years old and comes on stage wearing a purple diamond patterned polo and purple tinted aviator sunglasses. This was 1972, but Billie Jean King's biggest problem was not her knee injury. Rather, her problem was getting paid fairly. At the time, the US Lawn Tennis Association did not offer equal prize money for women. 
At the 1970 US Open, for instance, the male champion got almost three times more prize money than the women's champion. You've had an incredibly successful run. And so what's been the biggest thrill of the last couple of years of great success? And I think just probably the general picture of tennis for me. The, what, the really, changing picture? The changing, it's growing, and uh, people are starting to identify with us as human beings and not just names now. You've been quoted as saying you think tennis is becoming more professional, that you're being treated more as professionals now? I think so very much. Uh, I think because there's been more money in the sport, uh, people are starting to appreciate our skills. We're on TV now a lot more, and it's made a big difference, I know, to me and my career that people are just starting to, you know, appreciate tennis. A few years earlier in 1968, tennis had become open. That is, professionals and amateurs were permitted to compete for the same prizes. This change, accompanied by the rise in television broadcasting, would quickly transform tennis into a multi-million dollar sport. But respect for the women's side of the sport would lag behind the men's. One time, a Chicago newspaper reporter approached King for a story and explained that it would be on the women's page rather than in the sports section. That's the trouble with this sport, she told the reporter. We've got to get it off the society page and onto the sports pages. And you said that before tennis players were too accessible? No, I didn't say that. Oh, you were quoted in one quote saying Well, you know quotes are always wrong. Yeah, but people were approaching <laughs> you everywhere, you said. I mean, to a degree that they didn't follow football players around, almost into the showers and so on. Well, that's true. We're not Aha. protected. How are you not protected? Well, for instance, people seem to walk in locker rooms where we play, you know, when we're getting dressed and they're taking photos and asking for autographs and... You know, you're trying to get psyched up for a match. It's difficult. And how has the women's role in tennis changed in the past year or two? I mean, this women's tour has been a great success, right? It has, and I think uh, for the first time in our lives, we've just been appreciated as athletes. This women's tour that Dad mentioned was the newly founded Virginia Slim Circuit. In 1970, King and other female tennis athletes rebelled against pay inequality and lack of opportunity by forming a series of 19 all-female tennis tournaments, the Virginia Slims. The U.S. Lawn Tennis Association responded by threatening to suspend the women, but King and the others didn't bow to the pressure. Within three years, the success of the tournament helped her found the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, which today is still the premier organization for women's tennis across the world. It's uh, been really a fantastic reception and I know it's made my career because I don't know people just appreciate it now and it's what changed the attitude to the way people watch women's tennis and everything else I mean they I watch it so. with more, interest. more enthusiasm and I think they're becoming more sophisticated the fans they they're becoming more involved people identify with us and you know for instance every place I go now they know they feel they know me as a person now and it makes a big difference you have a lot more fans who follow the sport and, uh, well, of course, people know you a lot more. Among other things, you signed that we had an abortion declaration in uh, MS. I knew we'd have to get into this. <laughs> just a few months earlier, and just one year before Roe v. Wade, 53 women signed a statement in the new feminist magazine Ms. under the headline, We Have Had Abortions. The article aimed to challenge the stigma of abortion by listing the names of prominent women who'd undergone the procedure. Signees included critic and filmmaker Nora Ephron, the musician Judy Collins, and of course, Billie Jean King. Controversy soon followed. But I mean, has that led to a lot of reaction from people? Yes, it has. What's the Good reaction? and bad. What was the well, good? Well, I've had what a lot of women bad? write me and say that 
you know, it's helped their situations. Uh, people really never understand why someone would probably have an abortion, but there's many, many reasons and many, many different circumstances, and I think that a woman should have the choice. Why did you make the decision in your own case, in fact? Oh, I think it's a personal decision. I don't think it's really anybody's business. No, but on the other hand, you signed the public declaration. Oh, I know. I had an abortion. Yeah. But I don't think the reason that anyone has to know, I can say that it was not because of my career. I've already made it in tennis, and uh, I've probably been a very fortunate human being to have done what I wanted. Do you, do you want to have children one day? I mean, yes, I do. And when, how will you decide that? Will you give up your career completely when that happens? Oh, do you think? definitely. How much longer do you want to do it? And I just love tennis. Tennis is an art to me, and I love it. And I like just hitting the tennis ball. There's a really a, an art to it. There's balance and movement, and I hear... <laughs> yeah, balance and movement from Billy in the background. But, but one of the things, the fact that we've got to take a break, but have you passed your peak and now it's experience and you're not quite as fast as you were, or will you go on getting faster? I mean, what, what's the peak at tennis? I think it varies with each individual, but I think, generally speaking, uh, athletes are starting younger and finishing later now, and I think... I think the peak is becoming at an older age. So you think you could stay at the top for how long, if you wanted to? <sighs> I have no idea. It's my knees, I don't know. I just love playing, and uh, it's exciting to be a part of, of tennis. It all depends on the knees. We've got to take a break. That music in the background comes from a man who's been at his peak for years and will for many more, Mr. Billy Taylor. We'll be right back. Billie Jean King would stay on top of her game for many more years. She'd finish her career with a record of 695 wins and 129 titles to her name. One year after this interview, she'd face off against Bobby Riggs, a former world number one, and sweep him in three sets in a match that was called the Battle of the Sexes. But her greatest title victory came just a few weeks after this interview when, thanks in part to her support, a new civil rights law was passed that would open up boundless athletic opportunities for young women, Title IX. Before Title IX, less than 4% of high school girls participated in sports. Today, that number is over 40%. Okay, Billy. When Dad started his first interview show in Britain, The Frost Programme, it was considered quite radical. Not only were the interviews longer, but they also had something entirely unprecedented, a live audience. It is just an audience of three or four hundred people, but it is terribly important, I think, that television not be insulated from what people feel. And I can think of lots of occasions where you get a laugh or a groan or something like that, that punctures uh, pretension in a way that it couldn't happen otherwise. Of course, a live audience and its unpredictable nature wasn't always welcomed by everyone, and some criticised Dad's new way of doing things. But that criticism only encouraged him even more. I heard someone was quoted somewhere as saying some phrase about, you're departing from the format. Well, my reaction to that is always, praise be, depart, 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 you know, because nothing is more boring for viewers at home, or indeed for the people doing it, than a stereotype format. And so let people depart from the format if they want to, you know. And but one of the most unusual departures from the format came in 1971, when Dad invited feminist journalist Gloria Steinem onto the show, not just for an interview, but as a guest host. Thank you very much indeed, and welcome to the show. And uh, this is going to be a very... 
interesting and very relaxing show for me because at the end of this first segment, I'm going to stroll off and I'm going to watch the rest of the show as I trust all of you are because uh, today a new magazine is published, a new magazine that I was holding up just then called MS or Ms. It's called The New Magazine for Women and uh, we're going to welcome its editor now, one of its editors, Gloria Steinem, and she's going to take over and just as they've fashioned a magazine the way they'd like to, we're going to invite them today to fashion a talk show as they'd like to. So will you welcome now Miss Gloria Steinem. <laughs> Why is it called MS or Ms? Well, uh, Miss or Mrs. is kind of obsolete because it means uh, marital status and it means you're identified according to your relationship with a man. So since this is you know, a much more popular form of address now, really, there are bills in Congress to, so that the government will use it and so on, we decided it would be symbolic and good. I went through some of the mail that we get whenever we discuss the subject. Letters from women who say, I am perfectly happy as a housewife and mother. Uh, I resent the suggestion that I'm idiotic for so being. Do the people of women's liberation want to make me unhappy instead of happy? But that's not the women's movement that's saying there's you know, necessarily something wrong with being a housewife. I mean, it's said by the press that the women's movement is for women who work as if that somehow excluded housewives who work harder than anyone. It makes no sense. What the movement is saying is, look, women's work is important and dignified human work, no matter where it is, and it should be recognized as such in the home, outside of the home. The point is that she has had choice in her life. She should know that she could have been an engineer or um, an author or a jockey or a scientist or whatever she wanted to be. The other recurring theme of the letters seems to be lot, lots of ladies write in and say, I suffer, if anything, from a lack of leadership in my man or my men, rather than tyranny. Now, what do you say to people who say that? Who, in fact, there seem to be more women who are unhappy about a lack of leadership from men, rather than well, who are suffering in a uh, despotic situation with men. But that's, that's a role confusion. You know, why should a man have the burden of always being the leader? I'm sure that that woman is not making life happy for that man and is forcing him into a a male role that is, you know, he has to be right all the time and know the answer all the time and never show emotion and make a lot of money and all those things. What the whole humanist revolution is about is to change both those roles, not just one. So, uh, you know, perhaps uh, the, the husband of that woman uh, would be interested in the movement as well because he would be free to be uncertain and human and show emotion. Well, I better stop there because then what I'm trying to say is that there's all sorts of things in the yeah, magazine. Is, but you're on your own. What else do you need? You've got, you, you need I your clipboard. I need my clipboard, yes. We'll get your clipboard. All right, we'll take a break. <laughs> and when you come back, it'll be the Gloria Steinem show. We'll be right back. <laughs> welcome back to what used to be the David Frost show. Uh, women have taken over. Steinem starts off looking directly at the camera, and six other women sit in a half circle alongside her. Meanwhile, Dad is nowhere to be seen. Since David introduced me, I'll introduce uh, the rest of us. First, here's Jane O'Reilly. One of the first guests is Jane O'Reilly, who wrote an article for Ms. called The Housewife's Moment of Truth. The story describes the moment when a woman realizes enough is enough, what O'Reilly calls the click. And perhaps you can explain to me why it is that all over New York City I now hear women saying click. 
What does that mean? <laughs> when I wrote that story about housework, I tried to show some of the moments of truth when you suddenly think, that's me too. What they're talking about is me too. Little, well, very little things. Um, for example, one night I watched two couples having dinner together at one couple's house, and the guest man kept saying to his wife, get up and help Juliet. And suddenly both women looked at each other because both men had hands and feet and were able to help, and they both went. And another of my favorites was I watched someone pile up toys and laundry and things on the stairs to be carried upstairs, and as her husband stepped over them, empty-handed, he said, why don't you ever pick up the stuff around this house? And she went, you have two hands. What happens after the click, though? A lot I'm of trouble. <laughs> I mean, um, what, uh, what suggestions have you got for the woman who has clicked? Well, I said the first thing you have to realize that to be a woman, you do not have to be in motion 99 hours a week. You then must make a statement to the family of what you will do and what their responsibilities are. Having made the statement, no one will pay any attention to you at all, especially not if you go on doing it, because as long as the housewife does it, no one else will do it, as indeed, why should they? So the most difficult part is to not do what you've decided you won't do. So many women have said to me, but I have to clean the house, I have to keep it constantly tidy because it's important to me. And eventually, I realized, and other people must realize, that what is important to them is important. And the rest of the family must be persuaded of that, that their priorities do not come last. But so many people say, if your movement, if your revolution, so-called, is concerned with uh, doing the dishes, it can't be very important. Why do, you, why do you even talk about those things? Because liberation begins at home. Women's occupations have always been seen as trivial, and hence women have been trivialised along with them, and that's part of the inferior status that they get. I mean, That's Juliet Mitchell speaking, a British psychoanalyst who's now a professor at Cambridge University. Her book, Psychoanalysis and Feminism, has been praised as one of the most influential and original texts in that field. Housework isn't really work. We've heard that so many times, you know, and however many times you say, but surveys show that women on average work for 90 hours a week or whatever it is, and yes, it is work, it's heavy lifting and all the rest of it. Still, it's somehow not really work. And that's partly because in a money economy, it's unpaid work. And so therefore, given the system and the system of values that we have, it is in a way seen to be valueless and trivial, and therefore a movement that devotes itself to something trivial is seen as a trivial movement. I mean, it's all a vicious circle. The Department of Labor statistic, not that the, the Department of Labor is your big feminist source, but even they say that um, a woman who works as a housewife, that uh, her services would cost between eight and $9,000 a year, I think, if... Um, you know, the husband to had cost, to pay. Yeah, in England it's supposed to cost, um, if you paid at the lowest rate to pay, which is a scrubbing rate, it would cost, it's been uh, estimated, half the national income. Here they only figured it out to let the uh, husbands know, in case the wives were killed, you know, uh, to, to let the insurance company know how much they had to pay the husband. Yeah. But, but yeah, for, yeah. for no other reason, yeah. really. Yeah. Well, men can claim for loss of services of a wife if she dies, and it's estimated at what that would have cost to him if she had lived. I'd like to talk to Judy Collins for a minute because we only met yesterday and I think you hadn't met any of the other women who are here. 
Judy Collins is a Grammy-winning singer-songwriter. As we mentioned earlier, she was one of the 53 women who signed the magazine's We Have Had Abortions statement. And now I get to ask you the question people always ask me, uh, which is, uh, you're successful and you're, you know, you've made it in a man's world and so forth. You can't possibly relate to the women's movement. Have any reason to be involved with the women's movement. I read Jane's article in the MS magazine and my head was in a whirl. I just couldn't stop thinking about how exciting it was because you know how many things it means. It means we're not talking about only about who does the dishes. We're talking about what our world is like and what our priorities are. It's about living. It's about following those impulses and dreaming dreams and taking over your own life and having it happen. And I went to an Electra convention of the record company that I work for the next day. So I sat down at dinner this night and noticed that there were no women being introduced at all. And I turned to the general manager of Electra and I said, it's funny, isn't it, that there aren't any women in the executive positions of this company. And you know, when you say this about any situation which is male dominated, people look at you and they say, oh, you aren't into that women's thing, are you? I mean, it's a joke, you know, it's, what are you thinking of? You must be crazy. And I think that's the attitude that most women are shackled with, even when they are professional women. And I think it's important to know that there are professional women in the world, but who still have a feeling that somehow there's something wrong with them. There's something backwards about them. There's something that just isn't human. A friend of mine said to me the other day, a guy, he said, "Um, you know, I looked at a, a date I was with the other night, a girl, and I said, gee, you are a human being. We're all born human beings. We don't have to earn being masculine or feminine, you know. And uh, it just because we look different, because we're female or black or brown, should not limit our lives in any way. And uh, we're just not going to stand for it anymore. Why don't you write in your great agreements, your great disagreements with this show, and we'll come back, we'll get those letters, and we'll do the show that you want us to do on this subject again another day. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. And now to someone who's been revolutionary in a very different field, in the field of politics. The first black congresswoman of the United States. Will you welcome, please, Representative or Mrs. Shirley Chisholm. The year was 1969. One year earlier, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to the United States Congress. The daughter of immigrants and a former state assemblywoman, Chisholm's campaign was unique. She drove around Brooklyn in a truck, blaring campaign announcements over loudspeaker, and she spoke fluent Spanish with many of her constituents. People have written about the extra obstacles and so on that stand in the way of a woman who's trying to get into Congress. What exactly are they? The fact that uh, gentlemen in this particular profession 
uh, seem to expect so much more of a woman. She has to be better. There's no question about it. She has to be better on many, many levels. Something that's not always seen publicly, but uh, is quite a part of the maneuverings on the part of gentlemen when women decide to enter the political arena, is to try to intimidate her gently before she even gets out there campaigning. How are you intimidated gently? Oh, the fact that, that many of them say, well, why should uh, a woman go to Congress or the state legislature for that matter? Because decisions are made in the bathroom. That's where the decisions are made, in politics, in the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, if, if, if a woman, if a woman uh, goes to the state legislature or to the United States Congress, uh, it, it is known. She can't be in the bathroom with the gentleman, you see? Yeah. So this is one way of, of trying to let you know that uh, you're not going to be too comfortable when you move in that milieu. <laughs> then secondly, uh, the whole question of trying to act towards you as though you're a different specimen. They seem to feel that if you are a woman entering the political arena, uh, there has to be something almost masculine about you. You have to be fighting and being aggressive all the time. But uh, I'm changing that. <laughs> <laughs> you announced the other day that people mustn't forget that you're tender and cuddly too, you say. That's very true. I am most tender and I'm a very cuddly woman. I love men. But you see, what happens is that this gets in the way of politics. You'd be terribly surprised at how some of the men do react towards me. In fact, one man mean? had the nerve to say to me, I don't believe you're really human. And the reason he said that is because I was able to out-debate him, out-talk him. I was able to dramatize my points on the floor of the house. And because I was able to do this, uh, he got the feeling that there is something more to me, that I just can't be human or I can't be a woman. But I think that as time goes along and they watch how I operate and how I move, they'll definitely know I'm a woman. <laughs> do you believe that behind every successful woman, there's a man? I mean, in the sense that, uh... Your husband, Conrad, said on one occasion that he realized that you were going to be the star of the family, and so he went all out to help in that. I'm not going to say behind every successful woman there's a man. Behind me, my husband is one of the most marvelous persons. I've been married now 19 years, and my husband, for the past 12 years, has become accustomed to the fact that people have been calling on me and asking me to lead in different ways. And thank God that my husband is a man whose ego is not threatened because most of you gentlemen really become quite seriously threatened by a woman uh, that has certain attributes, you see? And uh, you forget that God has endowed that person with those qualities, not man. And my husband's a very deep person. My husband comes from a political family, the island of Jamaica. And so he knows what it's all about. He himself, he's never been in politics, he doesn't like it, but he has never stopped me because he has said, I have seen with my own eyes how people, both black and white, have come asking you to give them leadership. So how can I hold you back? I will support you and encourage you. And he has done so. And for this, I am eternally grateful. And I mean this from the depths of my heart because I could not be happy fighting, and you know I do fight, and doing the things that I do, 
if I didn't have a home that I could return to and know that there's someone there who cares and someone who understands what I'm trying to do. It's very important. That's great. That's great. When Chisholm arrived in Congress, she faced an uphill battle against both racism and sexism. But she was a very skilled politician. She knew that political power was as much about navigating relationships as it was about policy. And she was absolutely fearless when it came to convincing other people that her way was the right way. Have you ever actually used womanly wiles, you can tell us? Have you ever used womanly wiles? Have you, have you, ever, have you ever used a tear, for instance, to turn a hard heart? In... No, I... I, oh. I, I... <laughs> no, I haven't. I, I... Well, I have used a, a few feminine wiles. Uh, and uh, I was always conscious of what I was doing, of course, but you know, it worked. You know, everything is done in Washington at cocktail parties. Uh, and you find that sometimes if you... But is it done in the bathrooms and so Well, I wouldn't know. You see, uh, uh, they'd never permit me to they go don't, there. They don't do anything up on Capitol Hill. It's either in one of those two places. Cocktail no. lounges, and so they tell me, the bathroom. Yeah. But I can tell you, in terms of the ba- oh, no, in terms of the cocktail lounge, <laughs> no, in terms of the cocktail lounge, uh, if you want to get through to a certain gentleman and know that said gentleman has a certain influence on six or seven other men in the House or in the state legislature, for that matter, your job is to try to get to him in whatever way you can, because you know he has an effect on six or seven more bodies. So at a cocktail party, quite often. Uh, these gentlemen will imbibe quite a bit, you know? And so after six or seven, they're much freer, you know? Freer in, in, in many different ways. So <laughs> therefore, that is the time that you move in. But you must not move in aggressively. You must be very subtle and always keep it on legislative matters, you see? But at the same time, knowing that you're using your eyes your hands, the words, the tonal quality of the voice. You're using a combination of everything. And pretty soon, within five minutes, I have found that I have usually succeeded in getting some of them to my way of thinking, David. That's marvelous. That's marvelous. I'd love to come to a cocktail party with you and watch. <laughs> yes, I'd love to have you. I'd really love to have you. <laughs> We've got to take a break, eh? We'll be right back. Chisholm ran for president just a few years after this interview in 1972. Her slogan was unbought and unbossed. Although she placed fourth in the Democratic primary, her campaign inspired a generation of women to run for political office, including 2020 vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, who recently said, I stand on the shoulders of giants like Shirley Chisholm. Someone was saying that you're a different type of person to the usual sort of politician. How would you say you're a different type of politician? I'm not the type of politician that uh, can be manipulated. I am the independent-minded type of individual that is emerging on the American scene. The young people all over this country who keep writing to me, keep telling me that I am their kind, their type. And I think it means something I think it really means that they're looking for leadership or people who have integrity, who have the guts to stand up 
and fight and who have the courage to speak out even though uh, they may not be popular uh, for, for a few moments. Because it is a known fact that my rise in the political arena has not been an easy rise. I rose in spite of the power structure. I rose because of people. And before I entered the political arena, I had been very active for many, many years in my community, leading groups and organizing all kinds of groups. And the people said to me, well, since you do this anyhow, it's extracurricular activity because I had been a teacher and a director of a private school. Why don't you consider leaving the educational arena and leading us and entering into politics? And it was the people that began to take up the cry and do this for me. Tell me, do you think there can ever be a woman president of the United States? Sure. Oh, yes. Yes, it's coming. <laughs> when? Where? Well, it may not happen in, in my lifetime. It would depend on the women in this country really realizing that they have a great deal of power that they haven't even tapped and that they would come together. Men are looking terrified. Look at <laughs> and that they would come together and back a woman for president, not just back a woman. You gentlemen have got to understand one thing. When you talk about backing a woman, it would mean that the woman has already indicated by her behavior and her actions that she has the attributes for leadership. And if such a woman does emerge in the future and the women of this country want to save this country, because I believe that this country is going to be saved by women and students, I happen to believe that. And if that, and if, and if the women come together in spite of racial differences, class differences, economic differences, and really back a strong woman, I could see this happening in about 70 or 75 years. I really mean that very seriously. That's quite a long time though, isn't it? Yes, it is, but you have to give you gentlemen a chance to get acclimated, you know, for the... <laughs> <laughs> thing that is to happen in the future because it is going to happen. Nobody will be able to stop. It's going to happen. Can't you see what is happening now on the American scene? So many things are happening on the American scene that many of us never dreamt. You know what have happened? Black people no longer passive, rising up and saying we want our share. Students on the campuses saying we are tired of shame and hypocrisy. We want leadership that we can look up to, things that are happening that a lot of us in this room, I dare say, never dreamt could have happened. So therefore, this is why I predict very comfortably that a woman will be president someday in this country. Thank you so much for being with us. Shirley Chisholm. Thank you very much. Next time on The Frost Tapes, protest and dissent in the age of Nixon. What happens is that quite often the people who represent us in government do not carry out the wishes of the people. I have indicated how I feel about dissent and what kinds of dissent I think are proper. Do you call their patriotism into a question? Do you impugn their loyalty to the United States? Politics is people. No, politics is the right to live. It's inferred that, that we are not grateful or we don't appreciate the, the greatness that America has. I don't think anyone's saying that. We just want it to live up to its potential. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradigm Productions. 
Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Itor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Zafar, Michelle Lands and Josh Fisher. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reading in the Years Productions, Morgan Lavoie of iHeartMedia. Life of a Poor Woman was performed live by the Ridley Sisters on The David Frost Show.